Do you know what time it is? It's that time again with Cindy Gern, who has the latest news about employment trends, current opportunities, and innovative strategies for managing a career on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. Hi, this is Lewis Montgomery, and welcome to my show, Government Contracting Today. I'm very pleased to welcome my guest, Kay Curling, who is the Senior Vice President and Chief HR Officer of Salient CRGT. Welcome, Kay. Thank you. As uh, those of you who maybe have heard my show before, the reason we talk about government contracting is that it is a huge industry here in the DMV. Collectively, Virginia, D.C., and Maryland represent three of the top five spends in government contracting in the country. So again, this between government and government contracting, this is a massive, massive industry in our in our area. And I'm, again, very pleased that I've got a, a guest who has uh, spent a good bit of her career in government contracting. I mean, Kay, you've worked for several major firms in the government contracting sector, your current organization, Salient CRGT, Circo North America, where we work together, SI International, SRA, now known as CSRA. How did you initially get into government contracting? Well, I'm going to step back just a moment and say, first, I'm a native of Northern Virginia, which is pretty unusual. There aren't too many folks that grew up here and really um, have watched this area evolve, as you said, into a major um, government site as well as government contracting site. So my mother first spent 40 years in the government and spent time at the FBI and Treasury. So working around government was something I learned from my mom. All of our neighbors were either government contractors or in the government or state department. So it was a language I was familiar with, and it was something that um, you just assumed that when you met someone, they were either in the federal government or a government contractor. Well... I don't think anyone says they want to have a career. You know, in high school, you don't think of having a career in government contracting. And certainly, as I headed off to Virginia Tech, I never expected that that would be the outcome. After I graduated, um, my husband and I headed to Germany and spent the next 10 years there. And that really was the start of my government contracting career. Um, first, as a you know, young 21-year-old thinking I can do anything, I went to work for a German bank where I was one of two people who spoke English. Um, that was rather daring considering I didn't speak any German. But following that, um, when we moved further south in Germany, I went to work for Department of Army. And that really was where I cut my teeth initially in the government sector. But as all things do, that time 10 years later came to an end and we came back to the D.C. region, and I was expected to go to work at the Pentagon and quickly decided that that probably wasn't where I wanted to go next. So my husband told me about an opportunity at SRA um, as a training director, and I said, okay, I will try that. Well, that led to 20 years um, at SRA, and it was an amazing opportunity to learn from some of the notable um, founders and industry champions um, at SRA. So when I joined SRA, we, I was employee number 230, fairly small company. And when I left um, running HR, we had over 6,000 people. 
it's really where I learned what I'd call the trade of HR. I had an opportunity to do a lot of different things. And one of the first things you learn when you are a training director is training budgets are subject to the whims of the purse keeper. Certainly. So I quickly learned that I better expand my skills beyond training and dived into some other areas. Um, I think one of the things that was most interesting for me, having been at SRA, was when I joined, we were a private company. We went public uh, about 10 years in, and when right after I left, they took the company private again to a private equity partner. Um, During my last 10 years, um, and we'll talk more about this um, later on in the interview, but during my last 10 years, I had an opportunity to build something that was um, really culturally defining for that private company. It was called the Nurse Advocacy Program. It's what garnered um, SRA's achievement of being on the Fortune 100 Best Places to Work list for 10 years. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's great. Excellent. So you've had a again long career, uh, both in government and then uh, more recently in government contracting. Tell us more about uh, Salient CRGT. Tell us more about to the extent you can revenue, number of employees, and some of your customers, and and what your mission is. Sure. So Salient CRGT has over two thousand employees right now, and we are located in just about every state, um, about twelve foreign countries, and about two hundred and thirty sites across the U.S. We are private equity backed. Our revenues are a um, little north of $500 million now and a very diversified portfolio. So we serve federal civilian agencies, Department of Defense, Homeland Security, the intelligence agencies, as well as some Fortune 1000 companies. And our expertise really lies in what I'd call the cool technologies, the things that people in this area want to work in and around. So it's health IT, um, health services, data analytics, um, movement to the cloud, agile software development, mobility, cybersecurity, and um, IT infrastructure solutions. And we really support those capabilities um, through full lifecycle IT services and solutions, as well as training. And the whole goal here is not only to be involved in cool things, but to really help our customers meet pivotal and critical missions. Um, And one of the most fun things I found in this company is we have a really innovative talent delivery model, um, one that I've not seen in any other company I've worked for. And it's um, given us the ability to really, what I call scientifically place the right person at the right customer, and that's really what allows us to help our customers meet their most pressing problems. Okay, great. As I counted, you've worked for four major government contractors. Interestingly, all starts with the name uh, S or with the letter S, so we got an interesting uh, alliteration there. Uh, What's different about, uh, about Salient CRGT than the other three firms you've worked for in this space? So again, I'm going to step back just a moment because my um, adventure into salient CRGT really started with SI International. So after my 20-year career at SRA, um, I had an opportunity to go and talk to the folks at SI International and had the opportunity to meet Brad Antle, who at that time was the CEO of SI International. And he really was the reason I joined the company. Um, I knew after about 15 minutes of meeting with him that he was an emotionally intelligent leader. He understood the value that HR could bring to the table. 
Um, he had a magnificent background that included um, both active and reserves in the Navy, as well as time at General Electric and leading a division at Lockheed Martin. And I, in him, I saw a leader that people wanted to follow. They wanted to perform um, the best work they could because they they just believed in this gentleman. So when I joined him um, about nine months later, you know, one question you always ask when you join a company is, are you going to be acquired? Sure. Um, and little did I know that nine months later, my path would take me to meet you. Mm-hmm. Um, so after that opportunity with Serco, um, Brad decided to start another company. And it was the first time I had the opportunity to um, really build a company before we even purchase the platform company and then grow it. Um, I'm a builder and a connector, so it was an opportunity for me to pour in to the building of this new company um, to where we are now and in less than eight years. So in that time, we've made more than 10 acquisitions. Um, In 2015, Salient Federal Solutions and CRGT merged interesting part about that merger was that both companies were private equity backed. So now we have two private equity partners um, that are guiding us. And during that merger process, I um, participated in something I can honestly say I've never had to do before, which was a best athlete approach. So everyone in the executive staff had to interview for their Mm. position. And it really was um, an interesting time, I think, for all of us, but it gave us the confidence that the team that came out of there was going to be a high-performing team. And what I would tell you about the team is it's phenomenal. We have a lot of fun together. We work hard together. We enjoy each other's company. And we're having fun building a great company. That's great. Well, that's a that's an interesting and 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 very forward thinking model to to look at best athlete as opposed to just presuming that the people from whichever company was acquiring the other or initiated the transaction would have the uh, quote best people. So good good for for you guys. Now you've had the the the, the great fortune of working in a variety of different. Uh, governance models. You've worked in uh, publicly traded. You mentioned you've worked in public and in, um, in private equity-backed organizations. You've worked in privately held organizations. I mean, what's been the difference for you as the senior HR leader in those different uh, organizational configurations? Well, honestly, I could spend the next half day talking <laughs> <laughs> about this. But um, so my comments obviously are from my own frame of reference. Um, and I think that's important to note because different people are going to experience different things. And also, not only are they from my frame of reference, but there are, um, I held a lot of different positions during that time of, and certainly of late, of increasing influence and importance. So some of my time in private industry was um, at more of a managerial level. Um, but what I'll say is if you look at the time horizons for those three types of models, your private company, your private equity back company, and your public company, there's some things that really stand out. And as an HR practitioner, um, there are some very different ways that we interact depending on the governance model. So first, in a private company, you typically have a long-term horizon, and you're focused on long-term growth. Um, they don't need stockholder approval for operational actions. Um, they don't have to disclose financial information to the SEC or file you know, those annual reports or have the quarterly stockholder meetings. So there's more flexibility to determine budget and strategy. 
They have greater freedom to concentrate on the areas where they think the payoffs um, may be not only in the short term, but particularly over the long term. And they, I think they find it easier to stick to their mission because they're in it for the long haul and they aren't easily swayed by um, you know, the winds of Wall Street. Investments, um, I think, are focused on growing the company, increasing shareholder value, and, p- and investing in people over the long term. So private companies tend to have um, lower voluntary attrition. Folks can see themselves spending a career there. Um, and they're not as – because they're focused on long-term strategies, they're not um, as focused on short-term profits. What I will tell you is my experience having worked um, initially – in a privately held company was that um, they really did care about what the employees were thinking about. And they put their time and investments into certainly their growth strategies, but they believed that their people were going to be the thing that helped that company grow. So give you an example of what, you know, some of the things that you could do in a private company. I made my boss a bet. about 10 years into my career that there had to be a better way to take care of employees going through complex medical issues. And the bet was, let me hire a nurse. And over the course of six months, I'll prove to you by saving more than that nurse's salary that we can do a better job than the medical system themselves can do. Because if you think about it, it's a fairly fragmented system. Mm -hmm. So at the end of six months, we'd saved three times the nurse's salary. um, And we had, we knew we were on to something. Wasn't really sure what that was going to look like. And I had a lot of people telling me, you can't do these types of things. You know, you're not supposed to be in this kind of business. Um, But, you know, I'm not swayed easily. And what I'll tell you is at the end of Um, the 10 years, the program known as the Nurse Advocacy Program had two um, fully staffed internal medicine clinics. We had um, two nurses that were focused on case management and leave programs, as well as two staff members focused on the well-being and um, wellness programs of all of our staff. I don't think you could do that as easily in a private equity-backed company or even a public company because I think the strategies are different. So let's jump now to private equity where um, I'm spending my time right now. Mm -hmm. And they really have a medium-term horizon. So what you're talking about when you are purchased by a private equity company, they likely are going to raise money. That's their job, raise money to give you the money. And they put you into a multi-year fund, a five-year fund perhaps. Um, And the goal is in that five years, they need to show a profit to those folks that invested in that fund. Um, So it is a fairly short-term horizon. Um, Time is of the essence in that kind of organizational model. With that limited time, there is a real sense of urgency to generate the highest value for the shareholders. Um, There's a laser-like focus on improving operational effectiveness and scaling the company. It's not a model for the faint-hearted, honestly. <laughs> Leaders in PE-backed companies are pushed and they're challenged by their private equity partners. Um, decisions are typically made with hard data looking through a value creation lens. You can have great ideas, but if it's not going to create value and shareholder value over that horizon, whatever that time horizon period is, um, 
it, it can be the best idea, but it's not going to fly. So for HR, that means that our programs really have to be focused on creating shareholder value over that fairly short-term to mid-term horizon. Um, interesting, in our space, you talked at the beginning of the program, Lewis, about the DMV being mm-hmm. so focused on government contracting. Well, private equity has figured this out. Mm-hmm. And over the last couple years, there's been significant investment by private equity in our industry. And what do they like about this and why has it picked up um, over the last couple of years? Well, if you think about it, the diversity of the government agencies here. So if you're a diversified company, you have contracts from a lot of different agencies. You've got Department of Defense as well as uh, the federal agencies. And if you look just at the federal IT budget, I um, was pretty surprised that for fiscal year 18, it's $95 billion for IT services and solutions, about 44% of that going to DOD and 56% of it to the federal agencies. So there's a lot of money Mm -hmm. here for these um, government contractors and for the private equity firms, they see diversity and stability. And while government budgets have been far from stable. Um, lately, there's plenty of money. When they finally figure out the budget, there's plenty of money um, for the things that they feel are important, such as IT modernization, infrastructure, and cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. Public company, I think we all understand that. Mm-hmm. You're beholden to the shareholders. You've got a lot of quarterly reporting. Mm-hmm. The CHRO's role is really working with the CFO to produce um the reports that have to be filed with the SEC and others. And it's it's a much more compliance-oriented role for HR. Sure, absolutely. You've been, thank you for that. Again, you've been, again, we've talked about been in the government contracting space for a while. What, uh, what trends, more recent trends, have you seen emerge and where do you think the industry is heading? Um, so uh, thank you for not sharing how many years I've been, <laughs> been in this. Um, so trends, certainly a swing in government procurement. When you um, make a swing from what used to be best value, so spending the right amount of money for the right solution swung to low price technically acceptable. For the government, that meant someone who could get the job done, not the best job, but get the job done at the lowest price. And for the incumbents who already had these contracts and who were doing a great job, um, that meant their staff was overpriced at this point. And it caused all of us to rethink our pricing models. And in many cases, the staff that were on the current programs either had to take pay cuts, you had to figure out some other way. You know, there's only so many ways that you can mm-hmm. squeeze a turnip. So it, uh, that swing in um, procurement has really affected our industry. Um, mid-tier companies, which I'm a part of, um, are squeezed between the small business that have the um, specialized, they're able to win contracts based on their status. And then you've got the jumbos. And we're squeezed in the middle between the deep purse strings of the jumbos and the ability of the small folks to um, get the awards based on on their status. Um, The other thing that I think has happened, certainly in the last uh, 15 years of my career, has 
been that the government has shifted from long-term awards, five to 10-year awards, maybe five years with five option years, to one-year contracts with three option years. So think about that in terms of staffing. HR now has an entirely different model where folks are turning over involuntarily more frequently. Mm-hmm. So as the contract ends, we used to end it at five to 10 years and you hope you got the recompete. Um, we're seeing shorter um, contract spans, which I think is directly impacting the involuntary and voluntary attrition rates. Sure, it's gotta be causing a lot more turmoil inside uh, uh, organizations. Let's talk a little bit about you. I know that uh, you developed a very deep functional specialty in, uh, in health and welfare. And I'm curious as to sort of a two-part question. Why did you choose that area? And then later, I know you reinvented yourself to become a, a head of HR. So I'm interested in your, just hearing a little bit more about your own personal career story. Thank you. So I mentioned at the beginning that I quickly learned training was not the place to mm-hmm. spend a career <laughs> unless you're in a very large company with very large training budgets. So um, being in a small company gives you the ability to learn a lot of different things. And so that opportunity to learn about benefits um, was there. And I loved that side of HR. That's a a nurturing, helping side. Glass is half full. um, And it was just a lot of fun. But what I quickly learned was sitting across from our insurance partners and our brokers was that there's an entire body of knowledge that I knew nothing about. And it wasn't necessarily an HR body of knowledge. It was an insurance body of knowledge. So I figured to be the most effective that I could for the company, I better um, learn that knowledge quickly. So I morphed into um, a deep expertise in that. Mm-hmm. Got it. Now, I know later you decided to reinvent yourself to become a uh, a chief HR officer. How'd you do it? <laughs> Why'd you do it first? And then how'd you do it? So I would say a lot of great people like you, honestly, who allowed me the opportunity to um, learn, to grow. Um, I have an insatiable desire for knowledge. And um, I love conquering tough problems. And the one that comes to mind that you and I are familiar with, um, when we joined Serco, um I was given the opportunity to create a benefits platform for 12,000 people in exactly four months. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the stuff that I love. I love doing that. And I think when you're able to deliver that kind of significant value, um, it gets noticed quickly. And that's sort of how I grew my career into a CHRO. Yeah, great. Now, I read in your bio that you have been part of 25 transactions, which is pretty incredible. So that means acquisitions, a merger, and a business sale. I mean, what are you've been part of those conversations on the on the business side? I'm curious as to, you know, what are some of the criteria that your organizations have used around, uh, you know, to determine if they're going to acquire an organization, and, and then what, and then more specifically, what's been your role? Let's just talk about the acquisitions. What's been your role as part of that process? Yeah, one thing that I have learned is that you really have to have a well-disciplined, well-articulated process. And I have seen acquisitions done in a lot of different ways for a lot of different reasons. Um, but if you have a disciplined process with accountabilities, people understand their roles. They know exactly what you 
you're being expected to deliver and when to deliver it. And I think that starts at the strategic plan. So you you have to have an understanding of what that looks like and what it is that you're looking, what value you're looking to add um, by bringing on this company. Not, you know, a lot of people get caught up in the um, the hunt and not all deals should go through. Sure. Um, and I would say, you know, for everyone that we acquire, um, there've been seven to 10 that we haven't. So finding that right fit that's going to be accretive and really allow you to move the needle for the organization, I think is important. For me, um, it's both hard due diligence and soft due diligence. Um, The cultural fit, the right employees, making sure that you're able to bring those folks in and make them feel a part of your organization immediately is I think very, very important to the success. That's great. Well, you've had an amazing career, as we mentioned, across several different organizations. You know, as you're giving advice to uh, to younger people who are in HR or in other kinds of roles. I mean, what 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 you know? What have been sort of the keys for your success? And then, what advice would you give to uh, to others who want to follow in your footsteps? Um, First of all, it is a great place to grow a career. And again, I never anticipated spending an entire career in this industry. But when I look back on it, it has just been a phenomenal opportunity to, I think, really make a difference, not only for this area and for the economy, but for the customers that that we work for. We know that what we do really impacts the government and the agencies that we're serving. Um, What advice would I give? Be open to anything that comes your way. I ask all of my HR folks to think about um, moving out of HR for a period of time, to run a project, to work on a project, to experience life on the other side. I think that makes us better practitioners and better business partners. Um, Networking, I think, both inside and outside the organization, you have to be um, good at using influence. Um, it's not about power. It's about building the relationships and influence, which I know you're great at. Um, and lastly, I think you really have to focus on finding ways, no matter what kind of governance model you're in, you're in there to add value. And I believe that every single person should add value every day. That's great. Yeah. Okay. This has been a Wonderful opportunity to uh, to, to reconnect uh, with with you and to tell your story regarding uh, your success as now the head of HR for Salient uh, CRGT. Uh, again, thank you for being my guest. Uh, again, this has been Lewis Montgomery with Corn Ferry. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Workforce Show. This interview and others can be found at WERA.FM or at careercentralonline.com. Thank you for listening. Until the next time.